Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is March 13, and our chapter reading for today is in the book of Judges, chapter 14. Now, tomorrow we will do 15, and then we will do 16, and then we will start into the book of Ruth. And it is going to be a delightful thing to look at all four chapters of the book of Ruth in the coming days. But what I want us to do is just review where we are. 350 years, the period of the judges languished on. And I mean by that languished on. Sometimes it was torturous to see how the children of Israel were so quickly removed from the grace of God. And God in his wonderful mercy would spare the people over and over again. All sorts and flavors of enemies. Just like with those of us who walk on this side of the cross in our present day. Isn't it amazing how it seems like the devil never runs out of tricks and the flesh never runs out of appetites and the world never runs out of ideas? But in reality, all of these things are issues that have been faced before. And all sin can be categorized under three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And this is why only three categories of temptation were given in the Gospels in relationship to the Lord Jesus. The Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. That means that he was tempted in every category that we were tempted in and are tempted in and shall be tempted in. When we face the temptations of life and solicitation to do evil, then understand that the Lord Jesus has already been there. And it was not a demon. It was not his flesh. It was not a worldly thought process that he was facing, but the enemy of our souls, the one who has all sin wrapped up inside of him and the beginning of iniquity is found in him. Lucifer, who became Satan, the accuser, the adversary, Diabolos, the one who is continually slandering God and slandering us. And that's who Jesus faced head on. And he defeated him over and over again. Forty days he was with the wild animals in the wilderness. Forty days and forty nights he was hungry. Forty days and forty nights he was thirsty. And yet in the midst of his weakness and in the midst of of his hunger, in the midst of his tiredness, Jesus overcame him with the words of God. That's right, the very words of God. And over and over again, he would say, and the scripture says, and the Lord says, thus says the Lord. And over and over again, he defeated him with the word of God. 
And this is so important, but please understand that there is nothing new under the sun. The enemy of our souls repackages everything, and Samson fell for the oldest trick of all. And so the Bible records the story of Samson's birth to a man who lived in Zorah, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, this is an amazing thing because the reality is we are not very familiar in the West with the Nazarite vows or, for that matter, other vows that are made to God. God by the Israelites in the Tanakh, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The term Nazarite comes from a word, Nazir, Nazir, N-A-Z-I-R, which basically means to separate or to consecrate. When people entered into these Nazarite vows, they could do it for their whole life, which was the story of Samson and others in the Bible. Or they could enter into a Nazarite vow for a period of 30 days or a particular time that they laid out. And a person who put themselves under a Nazarite vow, now you can look at this in Numbers chapter 6, about the first 20 verses, 21 verses, I think, you will see this designation. The Nazarite was to abstain from wine or anything made from grapes, anything from the plant, even the grapeseed oil or anything like that. And later the rabbinical scholars allowed for other things, but this is not what the Word of God teaches. They were to not cut their hair. They could allow the locks of the hair to grow, and indeed they did. They were to be ritually pure, that is, they were not to be around dead people, even if it was their own family, they were not to be around corpses, and they could do this for a certain period of time. When the time was over, they would wash themselves, that is, in a mikvah, they would dip themselves in a cleansing pool, and they would usually make three offerings, a burnt offering, uh, sin offering and the peace offering. This was very expensive. Again, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 6. Now, lest you think this was just something in the Old Testament, it wasn't. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow for a period of time. And in chapter 18, when you read the narrative, pick up on it in verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Kincrea. We call it Sincrea. For he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left there, but he did not stay long. Now, when you turn over just a couple of chapters, the Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem meeting with James. Now, this is a fascinating story, and I know we're in the book of Judges, but we're dealing with a Nazarite vow. And this is not the last time we're going to see this throughout the Word of God. I know we've already seen it, but some of the great people that God used in the past took vows like this, the Nazarite vow and others. And after those days, this is Acts chapter 21, verse 15, after those days, 
Luke said, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea area, they went with us. Verse 17, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Now, James, this is the Lord's half-brother who was the lead elder, the ruling elder, the teaching elder of the church in Jerusalem. That's right, the Lord's brother and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, by the way, that's the way they had the church set up was elders. Elders were in leadership. There wasn't all this voting on stuff. The elders, the seasoned men of the church, led the church. I mean, this is the way it always has been. Somehow we've gotten this all messed up. But when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This is Paul talking to James and the elders. When they heard it, they glorified God. And isn't it amazing? They were thrilled at God using a rabbi, Saul of Tarsus, who was a follower of Jesus, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just rejoice in something God's doing through somebody else besides us? And when they had heard it, they glorified God. They gave God honor, praise, glory. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous of the law, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. And that's not what Paul did. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. In other words, the entire church is going to want to get together and talk about this because you're quite an atom, Paul. Therefore, do what we tell you to do. We have four men who have taken a vow. Now, this is a Nazarite vow. Take them and be purified with them. That is, they were to be washed in a mikvah, in a mikvah oat, in pools, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. In other words, pay their expenses. They had to buy sacrifices, very expensive, to buy three sacrificial offerings. And so he said, you go ahead and pay for them so that they may shave their heads, because that was part of the ritual that Nazarite, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. And James was not saying it is something, but we're going to let on like it's not, because that's not what Paul was doing. Paul told the Jews to be Jews. He was telling the Gentiles to be Gentiles. Let me just stop parenthetically and say to you that often I'm accused because I spend so much time in Israel and I teach the Bible from a Judaic perspective to believers as much as they can take in the Gentile world. And often people say to me, well, he's one of those radicals trying to make Gentiles Jews. Wrong. False. Lie. If you know that that's not the truth and you're trying to persuade others of my work, then you are a liar because you're trying to deceive people and to make me look bad. I believe that Jews are Jews and Gentiles are Gentiles, and both are saved the same way. The ground is level at the cross, but there are Jews who, as Jews and part of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, they do things that are written for the Jews to do. That doesn't mean it's for their salvation. It just means that they're Jewish and they have those customs and those commands that they need to follow. There is no problem. 
problem with that. And no one's judging them over the days of worship or anything else and trying to make anything more than what it is. Nobody is saved through the law. No one. They never have been, never will be. But Gentiles are not obligated for those things. And if they choose to do those things, then they shouldn't put that obligation on someone else because that's entirely in their freedom to do that. If someone wants to wear a prayer shawl, that's up to them. But they're no more spiritual wearing a prayer shawl than someone else. That is not. They're no more spiritual wearing a kippah, a skull cap, whatever you want to call it, a yarmulke, whatever, than someone who is not wearing the very same things. If they worship on Shabbat, that's fine. The early disciples worshipped on Shabbat. Why? They were Jews. But they also worshipped on the first day of the week. How do we know that? That's the pattern of Scripture. Why did they do it? The principle of the resurrection from the dead to celebrate salvation in creation was on the Shabbat. And so they celebrated creation on Shabbat just like the Lord told them to do, but they celebrated redemption, salvation, resurrection on the first day of the week. They would have started that on Friday evening. They would have started on Saturday evening as they got ready for Sunday morning to celebrate that Jesus is alive. You say, wait just a minute. That means they had a lot of worship going on in the New Testament. That was an intentional pause. Of course there was. You see, we're too busy to worship God over a couple of hours. They would worship God for hours and hours, but we're more spiritual than that in our own sick minds. Now, I'm not being ugly and not being facetious. I'm just saying this is important that we understand that worship is a part of our existence. And when you worship and how you worship is not going to determine your salvation, whether you worship on Shabbat or worship on the first day of the week. It's just the pattern of Gentiles in the early church to worship on the first day of the week. Why? They are not Jews. Now, I know I'm not arguing for Shabbat worship, but I'm telling you that even before Abraham, there was Shabbat, but it was not until Sinai, was not until Horeb that God said, this is for the nation of Israel to do, and you are to do it in a certain way. And he laid out everything that's distinctively Jewish. If Gentiles want to worship on Shabbat, you can. If you want to worship on the first day of the week, you can and you should. Why? Because we celebrate the Lord Jesus. We're not Jews. We are Gentiles. And so I don't judge people based upon what day they worship, and you shouldn't either. But it should be either Shabbat or it should be the first day of the week. We need to worship all days of the week, but there should be a time when the assembly comes together. And I've stated that in other podcasts. But what happened was, as you'll recall, the Apostle Paul paid for all of that. Why did he do that? So that he would not be an offense. If you look at what the scripture says, James said, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. What thing? The things that the Jews were, and in particular, the things that related to a Nazarite vow and to sacrifice and so forth, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from those things strangled, and from sexual immorality, just what they did in Acts 15. Now, for those of you who say that there's going to be no sacrifice and ritual in the temple, I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul did. Now, what were those sacrifices for? Were they to save? No, 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 no. Jesus paid the debt. He is the end of sacrifice. That is for payment of sin. 
But sacrifices were of all different kinds. And what were the sin offerings? They were examples. They were object lessons of things to come. They could never take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. No peace offering could ever say thank you enough. No trespass offering could take away anything. Listen to me. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And so those things never saved anyway. They were the way that they expressed their trust that one day, their faith that one day Messiah would come and God would settle the debt once and for all, and he did in Jesus. But there were sacrifices after that, not in order to be saved. Those That was never the purpose to begin with. And that's why when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's not sacramental. It's not salvific in nature. There is no cleansing of sin by the taking of bread and wine. No, no, no. That is an example for us, a memorial to us to remember what Jesus has done for us. They were looking forward to it. They are looking back to it. We are looking back through the observance of the Lord's table. So don't get hung up on these things. What the big problem is, we began to think that those things took away sin. They could never take away sin. They were only expressions. They were only expressions of faith, then, now, forever. Now, if I read the Word of God correctly, there's going to be sacrifices and there's going to be offerings during the millennial period. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. Read the book. And unless you're going to be an all-millennial and allegorize everything, when it talks about the millennial period and sacrifices and offerings, it's talking about sacrifices and offerings. Well, that's enough for today as we walk on the way. This is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.